Open your Bibles, if you would, to the fifth chapter of the book of Acts. We're going to pick up in verse 12. And we find here the ministry of the apostles. We're going to look at a couple of sensitive subjects tonight. A couple of things that are often misunderstood and sometimes misapplied and misinterpreted. One of them will pull out of the text itself. The other we'll actually look at uh, as a unified whole, the scripture teaches us. The ministry of the apostles, remember the apostles were a very specific group of men. They were appointed for a very specific reason, a very specific purpose, and given some very specific gifts that existed at the time that while God still does miracles and while God still can heal and God still is able to do anything that God wants to do, there was a point in time that God gave to these 12 some very unique and very wonderful gifts that we call sign gifts. And they were for a purpose, and Scripture tells you what that purpose is. And they were to authenticate the ministry of the apostles themselves. Because if you have somebody wandering around and they simply say, hey, I represent so-and-so. In other words, I could tell you that I represent the office of the United States, the office of the President of the United States of America. Well, well, if I can't pull out at least the President's business card, I'm probably not telling you the truth, amen? So there should be something that, that you would be able to look at my life or there would be information or knowledge that I would have and I'm using this as a way to explain what is about to happen with the apostles. There should be something that authenticates. I should have some kind of ID that would say, yeah, well, he you know, works for the president, and here's his, here's his title, here's his cabinet, and here's his business card, and this is his, you know, his White House pass to get in past the security gates there at the, at the White House. There would be things that would authenticate the fact that I have that ministry. The apostles themselves, interestingly enough, were given some abilities that for them were absolutely normal. And among them were healing people who were deathly ill, raising the dead, uh, raising limbs back to life. They were able to do some things seemingly at will, and Scripture says it was pretty much to all who were brought to them, Uh, that we don't see active in the church today because it was a way of authenticating that they were actually the Lord's apostles. And so what they could do was very specific and very unique in the manner in which they did it. And so tonight we'll pick up in verse 12. And something that sometimes attempts to get applied to the church today, and I believe wrongly so, that somehow every single person who teaches for the Lord ought to have the gift of healing, or every single person who really has a ministry, if they have the ministry, they ought to be able to do signs and wonders. And so tonight, verse 12, here in Acts chapter 5, we'll take it down through verse 16, and the ministry of the apostles themselves. Father, we thank you. I thank you for your word, for the power of it. Lord, we're so grateful for the ministry of the apostles and the growth of the first century church because from it was birthed the church that we're now blessed to be a part of. Lord, the church in the world, those who have named the name of Christ, those who have benefited from the coming of the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Lamb paying the price as being slain. And so, God, we pray that as we study your word, it would be alive to us that would encourage and strengthen us and bless us would you by your presence of your spirit uh, in your house tonight speak to us through the the wonderful word of god we pray this in jesus name amen verse 12 and through the hands of the apostles remember apostles had several qualifying characteristics not the least of which was that they needed to have seen the risen Christ. They needed to have visibly seen, uh, to have had an experience with the Lord himself after 
his death, his burial, and his resurrection. So these are very specific men. Through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were done among the people. And they were with one accord in Solomon's porch. And so when you travel to Israel, and you travel to what is now the Temple Mount, remember the Temple Mount that we see uh, has been extended, the walls, I was actually discussing this earlier, the original city walls were actually loose stone walls piled up, and in fact you can go to part of Jerusalem, and you can see the old broad wall that was actually repaired by Nehemiah when he returned after the Babylonian captivity uh, to this devastated city. You can see the old loose stone wall. You can see that same stone wall uh, along the edge of the Kidron Valley. Uh, if you exit out from uh, underneath what is uh, affectionately known as Hezekiah's Tunnel, a uh, water system to bring uh, water inside the city so that in a time of siege, uh, you can see that stone wall. But when you look at the Temple Mount today, you're actually seeing the old, old Herodian walls, which would have been there at the time of Jesus. And you're also seeing some Muslim and Crusader walls that were built in a much later period. And, and so at Solomon's porch, uh, there was a place where it was believed that Solomon himself uh, had entered into the area that is called the Temple Mount. And so it was there that Jesus would gather uh, with the apostles very briefly while he was uh, still with them, and, and he would teach. And so here, this is kind of like a special place. It's, it's not specifically and by necessity reserved for just the apostles, but you could find the apostles there. It's kind of like if you were going to go you know, hunt down the pastoral staff here at the church, uh, you'd go to the admin floor, uh, the second story of the front of the building, and you'd find all the pastor's offices. That's where you would find them. Solomon's porch was that place uh, for the apostles. And they were there in one accord. And, and yet, none of the rest dared to join them, but people esteemed them highly. And so it appears that there are the apostles themselves, and there are disciples of the Lord. They're gathered together, and the church has begun to grow. Remember that we've seen thousands added to the church. And so there are some necessary steps that are in view. In other words, when you preach the gospel, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Amen? And so the, the gospel's being preached, and people are coming to faith in Christ. When they come to faith in Christ, they instantaneously become a believer, and at the same time begin the journey of what one would call a disciple. A disciple is one who's taught under the tutelage of someone else. Uh, it can also mean follower. And so it's important to understand the distinctions in the words. You have the apostles and you have disciples. Now, every one of the apostles is also a believer and a disciple. Everybody tracking so far? So you have the apostles who are also needed to be believers and at the same time a follower of Christ, a disciple, but they have a special calling on their life. But with them are additional disciples, followers of Christ, people who are growing in the Lord. And there is evidence in Scripture that the disciples also were able to do some of the things, at least part of the time, that the apostles could do. But the apostles were uniquely gifted by the Lord because those were Jesus' men. Those were the guys that primarily followed Christ himself and were taught by Christ himself and had seen the risen Christ themselves. And so you have a larger group that includes the apostles and some additional disciples. And now notice this. And believers were increasingly added to the Lord. So a believer is someone who comes to faith in Christ. Anyone, whoever makes a profession of faith, is a believer. That's someone who has come to faith in Christ. And then the hope is they will also then add to that the steps of being a, a disciple, someone who continually follows Christ. 
And so the believers were increasingly added to the Lord. And I want you to notice what follows. We're going to focus in on a single word here in a little bit. Multitudes of both men and women. Now, why is that important? Because at that point in time, in a Jewish society, uh, women were not equal to men. And so the Apostle Paul is making a distinction. This is the first time here in the book of Acts that the Apostle Luke, writing his letter, the second letter, remember his gospel was the first one, and now here the book of Acts, he actually stops to take note that there were women who were disciples who were beginning to be used and beginning to also witness about Christ in the church. That would have never been allowed in Judaism. Woman was to be completely silent. Matter of fact, they were forbidden from speaking in public. They could not talk about the things of God. Only men could do that. And so there's a distinction that's being made here. So that they brought the sick out into the streets and laid them on beds and couches that at least the shadow of Peter passing by might fall on them. Pretty powerful guy that only a shadow is necessary to heal people, but it appears that at least some believe that. That perhaps Peter was, was caring so greatly the, the, the wonders of God that if his shadow just simply passed over. And also a multitude gathered from the surrounding cities to Jerusalem, bringing sick people and those who were tormented by unclean spirits. And notice how this closes. And they were all healed. So no matter what happened here in this initial period of church growth, with the apostles present, with some additional disciples there, that included some women, that God was at work doing some things that the people had not really experienced in this way before. Now Jesus had been wandering in Galilee and he had healed and he had fed and he had done all kinds of miracles and signs and wonders. But that was Jesus. The apostles came along, the disciples at times with Jesus. And remember, they weren't even perfect at it. From time to time, they would go and try and cast a demon out of somebody and they would, they would blow it and, and come back and say, well, we, we weren't very successful. And well, these only come out with fasting and prayer. You, you see, the, the church was now beginning to roll along. It's picking up a head of steam, so to speak. And so the Lord allows a very special time Uh, A time when it seems as though the apostles were just appointed and anointed. That really anything that was brought their way, the Lord gave them great favor and and touched people who were sick, not just physically, but also mentally and emotionally. You you see, as we saw last time, a spirit-filled church is also a a church where Christ is unified and and the body is unified and where Christ is magnified and the the body magnifies the Lord and the church is also multiplied and church continues to grow. And so we're beginning to see this church start to catch fire. It's beginning to really expand and grow. But as soon as that began to happen, you can imagine, as we've already seen, that church is also going to be an attack church. The enemy's going to come against that church. And so if there were a limited amount of power in that church and a limited amount of testimony in that church and a limited number of people, you can imagine that the enemy's ability to affect that small group of people would have been very great. And so it appears here in the foundational year or so of the church that the Lord just poured out his spirit in a wonderful, absolutely magnificent way to where no one could contest the fact that the apostles had touched the lives of all these people and they were healed. And so these miracles became those signs that had been asked for that Jesus said, none will be given unto you except the sign of the prophet Jonah. And so they were bearing witness to the fact that Jesus was in fact the one who was dead three days and raised and was now alive And those who were touched by him were now doing these things. And so it is an incredible time of church growth. 
And sometimes it's interesting to me that God can be at work and the church somehow has a way to mess it up. That we can kind of miss it a little bit. And there have been times throughout church history that that's been true. God's been at work and man either takes credit for or misinterprets the things that the Lord is doing. And so here for the first time, Luke mentions the, the salvation of women. And remember, at this day and time, this is a Jewish world, principally still, though Christianity is growing like wildfire, but it's principally a Jewish world. It's a Jewish world definitely in Jerusalem. And so women had a very, very limited societal role. And so it appears that they're coming into their own here in this passage. And both in the gospel and here in the book of Acts, Luke had a great deal to say about all kinds of ladies. Uh, there are going to be about ten mentions of very specific women who have tremendous gifts that are, that are going to be found. We'll find them in the remainder of the book of Acts. And, and yet today in our world, there are many who say that the Bible, and very specifically the Apostle Paul, uh, was a male chauvinist. And in fact, he was a misogynist. And in fact, the Bible itself teaches the inferiority of women. And I want to address that a little bit tonight because I think it's important that we get it right as we move on. And so I want to look at the ministry of the apostles tonight and as we do so, uh, it, it's important to kind of put to, to put to rest a few things that I think are, are misconstrued from time to time. And I'm not trying to rain on anybody's parade I'm not trying to draw attention to anyone uh, in particular but just to simply say that the Bible has gotten a lot of flack over the years uh, for being something I believe it clearly is not and that is so male centric that women are inferior and the Bible does not teach that and I want to kind of give you a little bit of that tonight one of the proof texts that's always thrown out there is found in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and, and because it says there that a woman is to, to learn in silence, it's almost as if uh, a woman, uh, and, and I will tell you one of the reasons I decided to include this tonight, I actually had not one but two people come to me and chastise me because I allowed Sarah to pray today in public. That's how, that's how sensitive this particular issue can be. Because she was a woman and we were gathered together and there were men here that that somehow was her exercising authority and me giving her the permission to do so. And I, I'm going to tell you that that's pretty near biblical craziness. It's absolutely not an accurate rendering of what scripture says. And so let's break this down a little bit tonight. The Bible absolutely was written in a time when the society was patriarchal. Um, it, it was the time then. It is certainly not the time now. But was the Bible written in such a way that, that men uh, ought never hear a woman speak in public? Or more specifically, is a woman forbidden from ever teaching men? And I think the Bible is actually clear on this issue. While the Bible is also clear on the role of pastor, it's very clear also on the role of teaching. And so let's look at these things. And first, let's go to the Old Testament. And I, I'm going to run through a few scriptures tonight just to kind of make the case. But I want you to notice something. Something that's often missed. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we all know that in the story of Adam and Eve, what happened? Uh, Eve, being deceived by the serpent, went and saw the tree and that its fruit was good, and she took a bite. And then as we know what Scripture says, then Adam, being the good husband he was, didn't lead his household very well and went and did the same thing that Eve did. It's interesting that the Apostle Paul doesn't hold Eve responsible for that. Adam was held responsible for that. For it says there in 1 Corinthians 15, 21 and 22, because he failed to lead in the way that he should, that in Adam all die. Not in Eve. Not because Eve did something bad or she was incapable or couldn't hear from the Lord or misled her husband. 
Adam was responsible for his own sin. And so there's a wonderful principle here that God holds each of us accountable. But as far as a husband's concerned, you're going to stand before God and answer for how your family goes. So let's not forget that, guys, before we start pointing fingers. Interesting concept back in Exodus chapter 35. You want to turn there, you can, verse 25 and 26, that the women... And it says there, wise-hearted or wise women were actually used in the manufacture of the tabernacle itself. Now, again, that would have been something that would have been hard to understand or hard to explain uh, if women were not able to interact with men. And it says there very plainly that they were, that these women used their creativity, their skill, and even their wisdom for spinning that wonderful fabric that was used in the temple surrounds and in the curtains that were there uh, at the entrance to the, to the tabernacle. And then, again, we don't even know, but it could be to the Holy of Holies itself. They were stirred up, if you will, to do that work. We also find in the Old Testament there are two full books of the Bible that were written not only about Uh, but exemplify a couple of tremendous women, both the books of Ruth and the book of Esther. So much so that Ruth would become the great-grandmother of King David himself, and and therefore an actual ancestor of Jesus. So when we we begin to kind of throw out this idea that the Bible is chauvinistic, I think the Bible itself, beginning in the Old Testament, really doesn't bear that out. And in fact... A number of women in the Old Testament are used as tremendous, strong examples of leadership, so much so that the children of Israel, in Judges chapter 5, went to Deborah, who was actually a judge of the time, and it says there in verse 5 of Judges 4, and she dwelt under the palm tree of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel, on the Mount of Ephraim, and the children of Israel came to her for judgment that she literally was the judge over Israel. That means that she called the shots and she said, look, it's between you and him and these are the things and according to the law, here it is. In 2 Kings chapter 22, verse 14 through 20, it says, Hilkiah the priest and Ahakim and Akbor and Shaphan and Asaniah, all of them went to Huldah the prophetess to receive instruction from the Lord. That she literally spoke for the Lord. That was a woman, and that was in the Old Testament before Jesus came along and and tremendously showed us a picture of the value of women specifically. Job, one of the most esteemed men who ever lived, about whom it was said that this man was more righteous than anyone that was on the earth at the time, uh, contrary to societal norms, gave an inheritance not just to his sons, but to his daughters also. And so there was never, ever, even in the Old Testament, in a time which you would expect there to be an overemphasis of male leadership, there was never an overemphasis in the Old Testament of male leadership. But there were lady leaders, wonderful, godly women who prophesied, who judged, and who spoke forth the word of the Lord, even in the Old Testament. And so there isn't an exclusion that we can see in the Old Testament of a woman ever being able to speak in public where men are there. It isn't there in the Old Testament. It was normal because a man uh, should have risen up in that role just like Adam should have risen up in his home and said, honey, you know, I don't think we should eat of the tree, but he didn't do that. There, there was a sense that God had said, look, this is how the structure of society is supposed to be and there, there should be a head. And at the end of the day, I'm going to hold you, Adam, responsible for it. But never was there a prohibition against a woman speaking in public Two men. That's the Old Testament. What about the New Testament? It's it actually even better in the New Testament. And in fact, if you really look at it from a New Testament standpoint, Jesus was the first, you know, he kind of almost started the feminist movement. 
Now, I don't want to use that term because it kind of has a negative connotation, but he, he was one of those guys. He, he was t- so totally against society, he actually got in trouble because he was seen in public talking to women. And very specifically, women that nobody should talk to. It was almost considered scandalous. He talked to prostitutes. He talked to foreigners. And he meets a Samaritan woman at the well. You know what's going to happen if you do that? Jesus healed women. He, he touched women who were unclean. He was not afraid of being around women for fear that if the woman spoke somehow, you know, he would have been instructed by a woman. Jesus spoke one-on-one with that Samaritan woman at the well. And he knew full well what was going to happen societally. That was forbidden. You weren't allowed to do it. And yet he did it anyway. I wonder why. I wonder what message Jesus was trying to send. Women loved Jesus. And in fact, as you, as you draw near to the cross, it sometimes appears that the women had a little more spirituality going on than the men did. That they, they actually trusted what the Lord had said and believed who were the first ones to really get there, who got to the tomb. Some of the most encouraging words that were ever spoken to Jesus were spoken by the ladies. Did Jesus really forbid women to talk to him? Not as far as Scripture is concerned. And they did it in public. Women loved him as a group. They loved him individually. Mary was welcomed to sit at Jesus' feet. That was the normal place the disciples sat, by the way. And yet, Jesus didn't go, no, nah, if you sit down there, somebody might get confused that you're, a, you're an apostle or something, so don't do that. And the reason I'm saying all this is we need to be very careful about what we say is forbidden can't ever be done we're we're in a society right now that's looking for reasons to say that the church is backwards and antiquated and, and needs to disappear because we don't quite have it all together and so i'm speaking to you as a group of people who are here because you love the lord and let's really understand what the word of the lord is it was, in fact, women who were the first to learn of Jesus' resurrection. Amen? Right? Mary Magdalene was apparently, I believe, she was the first person to whom Jesus actually appeared after he arose. I don't think Jesus was trying to tell us, you know, well, <laughs> you ladies, I mean, come on, I don't, don't think you can quite handle this really spiritual stuff like us guys. You know, because we are really spiritual. And I'm not trying to mock so much as I am trying to say, that's almost where people go with this subject. They say silly things like was said to me today. Well, I don't think we should ever have a woman pray. And I was very nice to to both those guys, by the way. And we had a good conversation and it ended peaceably. I said, I don't think there's a biblical mandate for it. I invited both of them to come back. I don't see either of them here tonight, so I'm assuming they probably read the scriptures I gave them and came to the right conclusion. But Paul was not a chauvinist. Neither was Jesus. Paul gives us one of the most beautiful, one of the most excellent affirmations of a woman's value found in all of scripture in Ephesians chapter 5. Passage is familiar to all of you, but there in verse 25, and it goes on in verses 28 and 31. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. And so ought men to love their own wives as their own body. And he that loves his wife loves himself, for no man ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it. And even as the Lord does his church, for we are members of his body, of his flesh, of his bones. And for this cause, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife and it shall be one flesh. He's valuing a woman exactly as he values a man. Don't you love yourself, men? That's how much value your wife is supposed to have. 
The same love that we have for ourselves, we're supposed to have no less than that for our wives. That is not an inferior position. That is an equivalent position. And we need to remember that. That's what Scripture says. That's not Jeff's interpretation. I doubt there's a theologian out there that rightly can discern the truth of God's word that doesn't realize that the very first time that women had equality in human society really came at the time of the authoring of Scripture. Husbands, love your wife as you love yourself. That is total equality. Matter of fact, he actually reverses the order and says you really need to love your wives in a superior way. They are so valuable to me and to the kingdom Christ is saying to us that we need to make sure that there is not any deficiency in that relationship. So what does the scripture really say with regard to the subject? What is it that women can and cannot do? Is there really a prohibition, so to speak, on women ever speaking where there are men and women gathered in the same place? Is that what it really means? If Paul's telling us to lay down our lives for our wives and cherish our wives and love them as we do our own bodies, I, I can well imagine if we all actually behaved that way, it'd be a pretty glorious world. And I don't think we'd have all these things that we have right now to where, well, you know, they're easily deceived, you know. I had a guy say that to me one time. I said, try deceiving my wife, she'll knock you out. In Scripture, Paul actually gladly accepts the ministry and and some teaching actually alongside of some women. It's important to see that. Paul, Luke, and Silas found a safe house, a, a home of certain in a certain a businesswoman's home. They're in Thyatira named Lydia. They're in Acts 16. We'll get that when we get there. Paul worked with several women in ministry. We find them in Romans chapter 16. Uh, He speaks with tremendous warmth about Phoebe. Uh, He talks about Priscilla. And and to top it all off, when you read the the 18th chapter of the book of Acts, and again, we'll get there and highlight this a little bit more there, Priscilla actually was responsible for teaching Apollos the right interpretation of the Word of God. That is a woman, very clearly it says they, which would include Priscilla, taught Apollos. Apollos went on to be one of the great stalwarts of the Christian faith, who was taught by a woman, Priscilla. So what about Timothy's admonition? You can turn there, First Timothy 2. And I want you to notice that this is actually a conjunctive statement. It applies to several other things. And Paul says, I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man, but to be in silence. For Adam was formed first, and then Eve, and then Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Is the Apostle Paul actually saying to us today that a woman is never to teach, ever, if there's a man present? I don't believe that the context, and I don't believe the Greek language of this particular passage indicates that that's the case. Another passage also often used is 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 34. Let your women keep silent in churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but they are to be submissive. As the law also says, for if they want to learn something, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Does it really mean that a woman is to never speak in church? Is that what Scripture is actually trying to tell us? And again, I believe the answer is quite clearly that's not. Because if you look at the context in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul actually makes the case that women prophesy. What is prophesying? It is speaking forth the word of the Lord, is it not? So if a woman can prophesy, how can it be that she cannot teach ever if men are present? The two things are actually in conflict one with another. So could it be that the Apostle Paul was actually making something that was culturally sensitive at the time that had to do with what was happening in that particular church? And that's why he used I do not as opposed to don't ever. And I believe that is actually the case. 
If women weren't supposed to prophesy in church, where would they prophesy? Only to other ladies? If that's the case, why did Paul ever work with women? Why did Priscilla teach Apollos? There would be all kinds of questions that would have to go either unanswered or you'd have to have one answer for one group of people and another answer for another group of people. And so there's an easier answer. There's not a total prohibition here that's in view. It wasn't that a woman couldn't ever teach a man or it wasn't that a woman couldn't ever be used in any teaching role. It was that at that day and time, because of what was happening in that particular church, it was chaotic. You had people that had just come to Christ. The church was in its infantile stages. And nobody was sitting around going to Bible college and seminary. Nobody, you know, spent time in a new believers class. And so you had all these questions going on. And it was in a society where a woman was not supposed to speak in public. And so this newfound freedom that all of them had, all of a sudden, all the ladies are going, man, I got to know the answer to this. Because they'd never had that opportunity to ever ask those kind of questions in public before. And so the Apostle Paul makes a statement, and he says, look, I I don't permit a woman to to teach in this environment because we need to have some decorum, some order. And so I think the Apostle was really trying to just say, look, as he would go on to say, let all things be decently done and in order. And rather than there being a lot of questioning going on, you take that home to your husband and you talk to your husband and get an answer there rather than we turn the whole church service into a question and answer period where where everybody's just kind of blurting things out here and blurting things out there the same way that they would say, let one person prophesy and another person bring the meaning of that prophecy. Let one person talk in a tongue and let the other interpret. He was just simply saying to the church, look, there's a newfound freedom here. Let's be careful how we use it. That's something that's true for us today. In Galatians chapter 3 and verse 28, remember that it doesn't just say there's not just bond and free or Greek and, or, or slave, Jew and slave or, or, or Jew and Gentile, but there's neither male nor female for you are all one in Jesus Christ. Why would God make us one and then say that there needs to be all these restrictions so if a you know, a woman has, you know, some spiritual thought or she's asked to pray that somehow that would be wrong just simply because there were men there. That wouldn't be equality at all. You'd need some different kind of administration of, of the entire word of God for that to be true. And so as Paul writes these things, he uses some actually interesting statements in the original language. And they're back in... in uh, chapter 2 of 1 Timothy, he actually uses a phrase that is better translated. Instead, I do not permit. It really is say, I urge you. That's a better rendering of the original language. And, and he goes on to say in verse 8 of chapter 2, I want or I am wanting you. And he goes on in verse 12 to say, rather than I do not permit, I am permitting you not. In other words, as if there were kind of a time In other words, what he was saying, uh, not that I never permit a woman to teach ever in the presence of a man, but rather than in church, when we gather together, when when there's a, a church gathering, let's make sure that things are decently in order. And so he uses a rule of grammar that literally renders that passage to teach a woman I am not allowing. And it applies to what he said in verse 11, which is just simply attentive learning. It's not a prohibition at all. And so given the tension that would have been between the sexes at that time, newly liberated under this incredible freedom in Christ, and not knowing how to exercise that liberty, anybody ever had problems exercising the liberty that God's given you? Anybody ever fallen into some kind of behavioral issue because, you know, you're free in Christ and all of a sudden you're a little too free? I believe that that was the very thing that happened during Paul's time. And so he addressed it for the church. And so when you think on it, is there really a prohibition against one of our sisters being able to to get up and teach? And as I've shared with you, I've sat underneath the teaching 
of some women, and I have been blessed, I have been challenged, I have been exhorted, uh, I have listened. Uh, we have men that by necessity listen to all of our lady studies and edit them and put them online. Are they supposed to put earplugs in? How do you edit a study if you're not listening to it? I mean, you could carry this to, to astronomical extremes that there is no way you could support them biblically. And so I believe, rather than putting a prohibition, all the Lord is actually saying to us is, look, what I did say, and I said it very categorically, was that the office of a pastor, because it represents the headship of Jesus Christ and how God set up the home, the office of the pastor is reserved for a man. But as far as being able to teach, we got ladies all over the place that can teach the word of God. That's not saying we're going to be ordaining pastors anytime here soon. That's not happening. But I am saying, you know, if we should have Brigitte Gabriel or we could get Anne Graham Lotz to come share on devotion to God or prayer, I'm pretty sure there's some guys in here that cannot hold the candle to her ability to speak forth the word of God. And so as long as there's a clear understanding that God gave structure in the church, he said, you men, all of the pastoral epistles, some 33 verses, are addressed entirely to men about being bishops and deacons and elders. In the church, the headship, because Christ established it that way as pastors, pastor, that belongs to, the, to a guy. But as far as somebody allowing a woman to pray or to speak forth a word. Sarah was quoting scripture today. I actually had somebody object to that. The word of God doesn't return void. Last time I looked, last time I read my Bible, but it goes forth and purposes to will what he has willed it to do. And so I don't believe there actually is a prohibition against us being a mixed gathering and there being a lady that would share some biblical principle on an occasional basis or pray in public, I think God's perfectly okay with it. Marriage, picture of the relationship between Christ and the church. The issue only is headship and leadership within the church. And let's make sure that we see it that way. A couple of things as we wrap this passage up tonight. And as you look through these things, when you think on how God worked with the ladies in, this, in, in Scripture, God gives the apostles this incredible task. And yes, there are no women apostles. So what I just said to you appears to be true from the way the Lord organized the church. There were no ladies who were apostles. We didn't, we didn't see them pastoring the churches. There was no pastoral letter written to a lady who was a pastor. But there were absolutely women who spoke forth the word of God in time and were used by the Lord in very specific roles that were limited to the times that uh, God had actually spoken to them. Those women that I shared, Acts 16, Romans 16, uh, Acts chapter 18, you, you can see women being used and so leave it in God's hands and don't tell God what he can and cannot do when he's made it very clear that he not only allowed something other than that to happen throughout scripture but there is no actual prohibition on, on, a, on a woman being able to pray in public it's just simply not there so we finish up this passage these men that were called the apostles had these gifts that we call signs and wonders gifts. And they were miraculous. And I, I want you to look at how God actually functioned. And we call it dispensationalism. But in a specific time when God is at work in a very specific way, you have the dispensation of creation if you want to look at it that way. God did something very specific, very unique. He did a, a total miracle because he from nothing, in Latin, ex nihilo, he created an entire universe from nothing. Um, we call that miraculous, right? So he does a miraculous thing in and of itself to begin all of creation. But at the beginning of that age, you did not have the law. You simply had the miracle of creation. 
And so mankind comes on the scene. And so at the beginning of the age of the law, what does God do? He once again performs miracles. He performs great signs, great wonders, and miracles through Moses. The same thing happens when Elijah and Elisha come on the scene. To authenticate the things that they were doing, what do they have at their disposal? They have signs and miracles available to them. They carry out their duties. So at the beginning of the prophets and the beginning uh, of, of those who wrote a majority of the Old Testament, we see God giving them specific abilities to authenticate the ministry that they've been called to. If Moses had just been this guy sitting underneath a rock and, and, you know, under a tree somewhere and he writes down a bunch of stuff, it would still be good stuff. But God made sure everybody understood that there was something unique about Moses. So what does Moses do? Here's stuttering, stammering Moses who says, what am I supposed to tell them? Who do I say sent me? And you tell them that I am that I am sent you. And so he says that. But how does I am that I am sent you translate to Pharaoh into Pharaoh's court? It translates this way. Frogs and flies and boils and the death of the firstborn. All of those things were God saying, Moses is my man. I sent him. What he told you is true. And here's how I'm going to prove it to you. All of these things are going to happen that you're not going to be able to explain. Same is true with Elijah and Elisha. And so at the beginning of this time of the apostolic age, they performed signs and wonders and miracles, and the gospel age is inaugurated. It simply tells everyone, look, these guys are different. They're not regular guys. They've been spoken to by the Lord, and here's some ways that you can understand that. And so people come from everywhere, and it says that all of them were healed. When Jesus performed miracles in his ministry while he was still on earth, he had three, person, uh, three basic purposes in mind. He wanted to show compassion on human need. He wanted to present his credentials. It actually identified him for who he was because not everybody was wandering around doing miracles at the time. And it would convey a spiritual truth. Now let's look at that. When he fed the 5,000, the miracle met a physical need, didn't it? It also revealed him as the son of God because not everybody could feed 5,000 with a couple of loaves and fish, right? And it also gave him an opportunity to preach a sermon recorded in John 6 that he was the bread of life. Do you see it? Physical, spiritual. He attached the two together. So I do these things. I'm not just doing it so I can heal people. He wasn't just pulling the Benny Hinn. He, he was doing it so he could take the physical and the miraculous and join it to the spiritual so he could get to their hearts. The same thing happened when Peter and John healed the crippled beggar. They met his need. They healed him. But they used that miracle to preach salvation to him, didn't they? They didn't just heal him and say, hey, go on your way. Because the greatest need of mankind's heart is not physical healing. The greatest need is is not, uh, you know, just to take care of the emotions of a human. The greatest need is to have our sins forgiven, amen? And so all of those things, all of those miracles were a way for God to get to the hearts of man. And so that people would believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord allowed these apostles to perform signs and wonders. And that's why I I can say with rather great confidence that there are no living apostles today. There are people who have gifts. There are people who have been able to perform miracles. There are people that have been healed absolutely without certain, and we pray for that constantly here. But as far as someone saying that they're an apostle, that gift was for then, it's not for now. Because there isn't a person alive that's seen Jesus alive after his resurrection. There are no people alive that were personally taught by Christ today. And so the apostolic gifts were for the apostles There were 12 of them, and what they did, they did at a time so that you and I could sit here and have God's word. So we pick it up, and we read the Gospel of Luke. Luke was an apostle. 
he bore witness to those things. And so his people confirmed what it was that Luke had done. They could say, look, we were there. We saw him do these things. And the words he wrote didn't come from this earth. They came from somewhere else. They came from heaven. I also want to remind you that when you look at the apostolic ministry, there were no failures. Remember when Jesus was still alive and the apostles, uh, the disciples at the time, before they were actually declared the apostles, before they were sent out on their mission? They had a few times when they didn't quite do it right, right? It's like, well, how come we couldn't heal him? How come we couldn't drive out the demon? That's because the Lord was still alive. And Jesus himself was coming around and saying, well, look, there's only one Savior. That one's me. So I don't want anybody to confuse that you're the Savior. I'm the Savior, so I'll take care of these things. So again, they just simply authenticate that Jesus was, in fact, the one, the only Son of God, and that the words that these men would write would be what we would have presented to us as the infallible word of God. Amen? Bring the worship team back up. And then do one song. We've got an opportunity to go over into the fellowship hall. So we're going to have a couple of pastors stay back here. But I want to really encourage you after we close in worship to go over and help us pack up a whole bunch of like 500 or so. Christmas child boxes, Operation Christmas child boxes. It's going to be a great time. It was a whole bunch of fun last year. We have all the stuff back there, so all you need to do is lend your hands to it. But remember, we need to be Bereans and study God's Word for what it says, not for what people say it says, but what it actually says. And so we read it, we take it in its context, we believe that, And we allow the Lord to speak to us through the power of his word. Amen. Father, we thank you tonight for your goodness. We thank you for your love. Thank you for all the amazing ladies that along the way have helped so many of us grow. God, I'm so thankful for those that have taught me the word. Lord, when I was younger, Lord, those that came alongside when I, I, I really didn't know much about you and God, I pray that you would help us to see how the great value in those who happen to be our sisters, Lord, the great gifts that you've given them. Pray that you continue to use, Lord, all of us for your kingdom purposes. Pray that you'd bless us. Lord, pray that you'd watch over us and keep us. Lord, we ask now as we close in this song that you'd anoint us, fill us up with your spirit, Use us for your wonderful purposes. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's...